On this episode of The Jukebox, I sat down with Dr. Sophie Moore. At the time of recording, Sophie was a postdoctoral fellow at the Joukowsky Institute for Archaeology in the Ancient World here at Brown University. She's since moved on to Cardiff University, where she's a lecturer in archaeological theory. Sophie is a late antique and Byzantine archaeologist whose current research is based on the historic period cemetery at Chatahoyuk. We spoke about fieldwork playlists, the hazards of tubing down the Goksu River, and what it's like to have your mom be your proofreader. Can you sort of connect the dots for me in terms of how you became an archaeologist? Did you want to be an archaeologist as a kid? I really didn't, actually. It wasn't on my radar at all. Um, as a young child, I wanted to be a dancer. Mm. Um, and then at about eight, I decided being a scientist would be really cool. And I was really into genetics. So I read a lot of like my dad's chemistry and biology textbooks from um, like high school and university and got really, really into genetics. Um, and like thought that I wanted to be a medical doctor and did science A-levels to try and get towards that. And ironically decided that I didn't want to work that hard. Um, and like went through this process called clearing in the UK where either you don't get the grades or you change your mind or like, you know, something happens that you don't end up going to the university that you thought you were going to go to. Mm -hmm. So in my case, I thought, I don't, I don't want to do medicine. Um, and because I've got a really excellent mum, she sat me down the day before results were out when I'd been like, mum, this isn't right. Like, I don't like, this is what's going on. And I, where, what am I going to do in September? She was like, well, for a start, you don't have to do anything. You can take a year out if you want. Um, but if you do want to go to university this summer, this autumn, and like, we both knew that I really did, um, have a think about what you like. And the things I liked at the time were being outside and the past. Like, I was really into reading lots of, like, living history stuff okay. and thinking about making things and making objects in a way that weren't... that that's not sort of... I was into, the, like, the pre-industrial past. So I loved thinking about... Um, mechanisms for watermills or how I might make a box or like Where did fabric. that interest come from? I, I honestly don't know. Mm -hmm. I think some of it is like because I have thought about this actually like where does that come from? My, my um, need to make objects and understand how they work and I think it's very much tied to you kind of see in media now this push towards the authentic or the real this kind of backlash against plastic and, like, as a child in the 90s, I was really drawn to um, folk music and stories that my grandparents told about how they grew up. Um, you know, I've always, I don't know, I was always a little bit old-fashioned, I guess, and I really liked old-fashioned fabrics. And I, I, I've always made things, but from about 12, those things tended to be, like, linen over nylon or, like, I was really interested in carving wood I just like made a ton of stuff and I was like, well, I like being outside and I like knowing about the past, but what I want to do is know, um, 
know what it might have been like, know who I was if I'd been born in another time and place. Like, I didn't want to think about kings or politics or economics, though it became obvious that those things were really relevant. I wanted to know who I might have been if I'd born, been born in another time. Did language study come in at all? Do you know, I'm really dyslexic, and languages have always been a struggle for me. Um, so my Turkish is acceptable, but to be honest, working in the field was the first time that I ever really felt capable of learning another language. Because um, it kind of built up into this whole thing. I can't spell, which is embarrassing when I'm proofreading people's work. People should never ask me to copy edit for them. I can't do it. Yeah. What about ancient languages? Um... <laughs> Oh, I'm being much too honest. So I did Greek GCSE as a teenager because my friends were doing it. I knew I wasn't going to manage it. I was doing it extra, as an extracurricular thing along with my science A-levels. I did like chemistry, biology, physics and English literature A-levels and then was trying to sit Greek GCSE going to classes twice a week after school with a bunch of my friends who were doing Latin A-level. And like they were just acing it. They were romping through these books, Athenadze. And I was, like, really struggling, but kind of thought, well, I may as well take the exam. And I got an F. Of course I got an F. <laughs> so, like, I failed the Greek GCSE. Since then, I have improved. Mm -hmm. I did the Byzantine Greek um, summer school, which actually just trips off my Where? tongue as the Byzantine Greek boot camp at Belfast, okay. which is a very intense four-week programme. And I, I do feel like it brought me up, you know, I can, um, my Greek's reasonable now. It's not, it's not where I'd like it to be, but right. um, it's not dreadful. So then what was your first fieldwork experience? I went to Bollyhope with Jane Webster and Rob Young, which is um, a Romano-British enclosure. I'm pretty sure it ended up being a roundhouse, but that's not what we were digging when I was there. Mm -hmm. Like, enclosure on um, in North Yorkshire. Pretty sure it's in North Yorkshire. They're going <laughs> to listen to this and be like, Sophie! <laughs> it was a three-week field school. It was a hoot. I, yeah, I made so many good friends and like had a really good time. Red Middlemarch was great. When did you start working in Turkey? I started working in Turkey in 2007. Um, at, the, at the start of my second year, having got really good grades, really solid grades in my first, um, Mark Jask Jackson asked me if I'd like to go and work in Turkey. And I said, yes, yes, absolutely. And he was like, you know, it's quite, it quite like having asked. He was like, it's quite hard, you know. I'm like, yep, yep, like on board with this. He's like, it's very hot. The days are very long. You have to work. I'm like, everything about this sounds great. Where do I sign up? <laughs> there was this kind of interview process where I had to really persuade him that I was going to be good in the field because he was only taking, I think, three people that year. Um, and I'd only had one field experience. Um, and he wanted to check that we weren't going to, you know, get there and be like, oh, it's a bit hard. And I remember him saying, um, there, there won't be anywhere to plug in your hair straighteners, you know. And I looked at it because... <laughs> I have really curly hair. Mm -hmm. I never straighten my hair. I was like, uh-huh, nowhere to plug in my hair straighteners, eh? Well, that's a deal breaker in my mind. I think my teenage face was like, oh, that's not a problem. Yeah. Like my very polite teenage right, face right. was like, really, no bother. So you've been working there for... Ten years ten now. Years. I just made a playlist called I Dig Turkeys 2007 to 2017. And how did you pick these songs? Just Are they songs that you just, like listen to in the field? Or? Yeah, they're songs that, um, particularly at Kalisa Tepe, which is where I worked from 2007 to 2012, um, 
there was it's a quite a small team and it was definitely before we had regular internet on site we didn't have any way of um of downloading anything on site while we were there um so we'd all listen to each other's music and there was a bunch of us that were really close year in year out and like we would all listen to these songs and at the end of the season which were usually kind of three months I'd curate a playlist for us um it was called now that's what I call dragon music 2007 now that's what I call dragon music 2008 so I've got all the songs from those kind of favorite songs that we'd all spent all season listening to in these like mixtapes basically so now I've got a big playlist of all of these things what are some highlights so a Yasemin Mori song Nolur 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 is so evocative of field work for me and I, I love it. It's a great song. Um, and it's I like the sense of it as well. It's like, what, what's the worst that could happen? Like, um, uh, Google Bildello, Start Wearing Purple is a particular highlight. And what's um, the, what's the, what do you associate that with? My friend, Yamo Sariolo, who is now Yamo Hefron, um, who works at UCL, uh, would drive us down to the coast for the weekend Um her father had a summer house within sort of two hours drive of us and a bunch of like four or five of us would finish work on a Tuesday afternoon um like Tuesday lunchtime and without even bothering to shower we'd shove the bags that we'd packed the night before into the back of her very dirty old car and race off to go to the beach for 24 hours uh, with something like that blaring really loudly out the windows. And we'd wind the windows down and mm-hmm. we'd all be drinking like rehydration stuff because it had been so hot and just roar out of sight. And the the feeling of freedom that came with working really hard and being part of this really solid team is honestly what sells me on archaeology. I, there's nothing I like more than working incredibly hard with a bunch of people I massively respect. One song that's really evocative of a time and place for me is um, in 2016, just after the attempted coup in Turkey, a bunch of us were leaving site pretty shortly after that. Um, it actually cut my season short. Um, and as we were leaving, and I, I didn't, we, I certainly didn't know if I was going to get to go back. The political situa- situation in Turkey wasn't feeling super stable. We didn't know if we'd get permits. Like, it was really very unclear. And because I'd cut my season short, and I thought it might be my last season, I'd really kind of spent the last few days running around to try and gather all the data that I needed to finish a reasonable version of the of the final publication. And I went back this year and had a, a good solid season and did everything I needed to, which is great. Um, but at that moment, that wasn't... I didn't know that. And as we're driving away in the bus, um, Dire Straits Brothers in, in Arms was playing on the radio. And it was this huge landscape again. Those big, flat Turkish plains I see in my dreams all the time. Just the, the Konya plain... And it's fields and fields of sugar beet. And the sun was rising over the mountains and this thing was playing and it was really early and I didn't know if I was going to go back. And it it just, it's like a very particular memory Mm. for me. What do you think you would be doing if you didn't end up becoming an archaeologist? I think about that all the time because I'm not convinced that I will manage to find a permanent job in academia. So, you know, it's not a done deal. Um, I don't know, there's a couple of... There's some things that I'd like to do. I would like to write more. I don't really think kind of that... Um, I write short stories mostly and some poetry. Um, though I don't spend a lot of time doing that at the moment. Um, but I I don't know. It's like I look at the things that I'm good at and they are teaching 
uh, writing. They, you know, they're all the academic skills, mm-hmm. thinking about stuff, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> explaining that stuff to people, um, <laughs> but also making things. So I've thought about interior design as sure. a as a second career because I really enjoy crafting space and like I think I would very much like talking to people about like what they wanted from space and like building a sense of their aesthetic building a sense of material culture yeah kind of thinking it as like okay well I'm looking at your habitus and I'm trying to make a space that fits that um that's interesting I I would really enjoy that it's just a different material culture challenge um but Honestly, I think that if I'm if I don't stay in academia, if I don't manage to, I really want to. Um, but I would be a primary school teacher. Mm. Primary? Why primary? I hated being a teenager. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, you'd think you'd think secondary school uh, would be closer to teaching um, the type of teaching you do now. I don't know. I think the kind of teaching that I do and the kind of teaching that I'm good at relies at at least a little bit on people wanting to be there or at least not minding that they're there. Okay. And my experience of secondary school was that basically nobody wanted to be there. And the people who did want to be there were like really pushed into not pretending not that they didn't want to be there. Um, And that's not my ball game. Mm -hmm. And it kind of speaks to all the story. Like I do quite, I I really love stories. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of you know, writing short things. Um. Well, speaking of that, um, what uh, when it comes to pop culture and sort of the stories yeah. that are told through movies, TV shows, podcasts, any anything, what do you think are the more, what do, you, do you have favorite or what do you think are the more successful examples of, um, you know, popular media that, that deal with the deep past? I really love Ursula Le Guin ah. as a as an author who I think does some of the things that I'm trying to do with anthropology, archaeology, in terms of thinking about what it might like might be like to be somebody else. Only mm. she has a much broader field of invention, sure. which is um it's a different it's a different thing, isn't it? But it's yeah. um But her parents were anthropologists. Yeah, and I think that really shows in all of her writing and they they led me to um definitely led me to some of my like who might I have been if I was somebody else kind of questions that mm-hmm. were that were and are pretty foundational in how I see myself academically. We spend all this time breaking things down and really um objectifying them in a way. And there's actually one page at the end of my thesis, the end of my um doctoral work, that is essentially narrative. And it takes you through the different moments and the different choices of what might happen at a Byzantine within Byzantine mortuary practice, but it's one page, and it's you know, ninety-eight pages in, mm-hmm. and like all of that, hedged around with qualification and ambiguity. And what what I want to try and do in my archaeological writing is hold that ambiguity, not to devalue anything that I've done, but to display it to the world and I think that's very difficult to do in narrative it's one of the reasons that I'm not completely sold on 3d models as reconstructions because I think it's very very difficult to properly convey ambiguity and interpretation in either a narrative form or a visual reconstruction Mm. I think I think the archaeologists I've known who I won't mention their names who have tried to sort of uh, fictionalize archaeological topics 
they tend to gravitate toward the meta-narrative of talking about archaeologists trying to interpret the past rather than it just being a story set in the past. Um, And I think that's probably a result of what you were just saying, that it's easier to convey the ambiguity in a meta-narrative than it would be in the ancient setting. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think there are some authors who manage it quite nicely, but they're not explicitly historical narratives or um, or anything like that. But I'm thinking of Madeleine Lingle's A Wrinkle in Time. Mm. I sort of suspect that it's easier to do that with a straight face if you're writing for a younger audience. There's something about magical realism that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. So I guess what have you ever been in danger in the field? Uh, yes, but only in situations that I've put myself in. Okay. What does um, that mean? With wildlife or? No. Well, I mean scorpions, but they're not like. I wasn't worried. Okay. <laughs> we had scorpions living beneath our toilet block at Calise Tepper, mm. like consistently, and consistently people would leave their towels hanging up while they showered and scorpions really like damp dark places and would like go and find the towels and hang out in them and then people would get out the shower and get stung um and it never happened to me but like the number of people to whom that happened during those seasons and my good friend caroline Steele, who actually lives like four hours north of here and being able to hang out with caroline on a regular basis has been a just like fantastic during this having this post at the Joukowsky. it's been so good so Caroline was the first of us to get stung. And I, I don't know, I was like a very fresh-faced 19-year-old and um, she came out of the she came out of the showers being like, ah, stung by a scorpion, give me a beer, I'm going to bed. <laughs> and my face was like, what? Like, do you not want to go to hospital? Is this not an issue? Like, what is going on that this is your reaction? <laughs> um, but, you know, she was... Um, I can't remember what her role was. Sort of assistant director, maybe? Um... Certainly, like, foreman for the project. So, you know, I got her a beer and she went to bed. And it kind of set the tone for how you deal with scorpion bites and scorpion stings. I never got got. Um, Another kind of early years Kalisa Tepe event was that we went uh, rafting in tire inner tires down the Goksu, the Calicadnus, where some Roman general died, who I should be able to remember but can't. Um, and we all thought this was a great idea. And uh, Mark Jackson, who was my PhD supervisor, kind of took me aside the day before we were going and said, um, Sophie, I know that you want to do this. I know that everybody else is doing this, but they all, but none of the others were his student. They were all Cambridge students with Nicholas Postgate. Um, I, know that you, I know that you really want to do this, and I can't stop you because I did it when I was a student, but I really wish you wouldn't. It's really dangerous. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going on an adventure with my friends. Like, <laughs> sorry, I know you'd really like me not to. And I know that you're responsible for me. But like, no, I'm, I'm going to go do this thing. Um, and actually, he was totally right. And it was really stupid. And there was a moment where we all almost died. We were like being pulled. We were like floating along and we'd got, you know, water and sun cream and things floating in jars behind us. Cigarettes and beer, pretzels. Um, we're floating down this river and it splits in two 
and our our village foreman Tunjo was like ahead of us and went off to the right and he was kind of waving waving at us and like all of us to a, to a fault thought oh he's like follow follow me follow me this is the way and he was saying go the other way this is very bad uh, but he was like well out of earshot so we get sucked down this right hand channel over a short waterfall in these tubes and then all of the water in the river is being sucked beneath the rock to get to the to get to the rest to rejoin the rest of the river and there's all of this trash so it's like this mess of people and trash and like thrashing around and like it's like this whirlpool it was hideous and i'm a strong swimmer but there were others in that team that that weren't and were panicking and it, it was just such a mess and those of us um particularly one of the excavators adam stone kind of managed to get onto a rock and and pull people out one by one but it was completely terrifying um and then we still had another like three hours to go um i know yeah it was it was stupid and scary and i have never been as tired as i was when we got back that night i was sunburnt we'd been swimming all day i was completely exhausted and the the next day on site was the quietest the quietest day (laughs) everyone who'd been on the trip was just kind of looking at their contact sheets being like that was that was really stupid. I can't believe we're all alive. Um, yeah. That's a good one. What about unexpected or memorable, other memorable moments in the field? It wasn't really field work. Um, but when I was a fellow in Ankara, kind of on a more serious note, there was um, there was a lot of sexual assault for me that year. There was a lot of sexual harassment and a couple of instances of sexual assault, which is, you know, too many for a year. Um and some of it was relatively benign. It was people groping me on the bus. It was um, people, I don't know, holding on to me in shops, often shop assistants holding on to me, mm. like grasping an arm and saying, can we go for coffee? Can we go for a drink? You know, um, which I found very wearing. There was a lot of staring at me as well. Like I'm, in a, I'm an unusual looking person in central Turkey. Um, I'm, you know pretty tall anywhere but i'm really tall in turkey um and then there was one incident in the in the flat of um the building that i was staying in um or like in the lift um this delivery guy followed me through the tour through the door and we went into the lift and he followed me in and he basically just tried to shove his hands down my trousers and like mostly managed and I screamed and started to cry and like shouted at him and he looked really surprised like why wouldn't you want me to do this of course it, I mean why like really he looked really hurt that I was screaming at him and then the doors opened and he ran off but I, I thought I was going to be raped um and it was terrifying and awful um so I probably was in danger there. Mm-hmm. I certainly felt like I was in danger. Yeah, I had a massive fight or flight reaction. Um, and like, it's, I'd never had issues working in rural Turkey. I hitchhiked around rural Turkey, which is also probably stupid, but a thing that I definitely did when I was younger and travelling on my own and didn't really have very much money. Um, but living in Ankara was the first time that I was kind of like sustained sexual harassment and talking to my other female friends there it was absolutely present in their lives too um yeah did it give you second thoughts about sticking with what you were doing to a certain extent it did 
It did. And the other thing that, that made me think about it more carefully was um, by no means all, but the reaction of some colleagues to sort of me telling this story mm. has um, has tended to be discomfort and a brush-off, which I don't think actually is an indication of how seriously they take it or not. I think it's just an indication that they'd rather not talk about it mm-hmm. and are, I don't know, embarrassed that I bring it up. Um, I don't think that in particular ever made me really question my commitment to doing what I'm doing. I think it has made me very aware that I want to be better at talking to junior colleagues when they're preparing to kind of go and live in another country or um, do fieldwork somewhere remote or travel alone. And these things happen everywhere. It's not it's not like this happened because I was in Turkey, um, regularly harassed on the tube in London. So it's not like... It's not like I felt less safe there, but I did just in general feel more vulnerable because I did speak Turkish, but not great Turkish. And it's not like I did not go to the police and spend a day trying to fumble through this explanation in Turkish. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to put myself through it, so I didn't. So in in that sense, I did feel more vulnerable. Right. Um, So like hashtag me too, world. I want to talk about um, what you see as the main concerns for future archaeologists. Yeah, I think that as a discipline, we can do a much better job of um, of pointing out that every moment in time is a conglomerate of what's gone on before and the particular conditions of the moment, and um, and that it's all natural and cultural. It's not like right. It's not like pre First World War, the world was unsullied and pure and good, mm-hmm. and that we should all hark back to that as some. You know, that's. I don't think I don't think any archaeologists think that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- I really think that some that within the general public, there's this sense that modernity is bad and we should go back to living in a different way. And I, um, I think that we need to be better at communicating just how bad an idea that is. Mm-hmm. I think that our major challenge as a discipline is access to the academy. I think that the amount of unpaid labour that is expected of our up and coming our up-and-coming scholars um, is, is, you know, a, a barrier mm-hmm. to access. The number of people who can afford not only to take to take on unpaid labour during the summer, as I could, but also just to take the time off work, to be able to say, yeah, I won't have a part-time job this summer, I won't have any job this summer, instead I'm going to go and spend three months in Turkey digging some stuff up Mm -hmm. like that's an incredible position of privilege um so one of the challenges that i would really like us as a discipline to rise to is thinking about the structural inequality that 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 is there Mm -hmm. that's present in that system of taking undergraduates on field schools and um training them yeah but also having this unpaid labor and who can afford to take up those opportunities? So what do your parents think about what you do? Are they interested in what you do? Oh, they're super interested. Yeah. They're, they're so engaged mm-hmm. and um, my most reliable critics. You're writing or? Yeah, okay. yeah. My mum in particular um, 
she works part time for Sheffield Hallam University as in their business development office. And really, the other 50% of her time is being a proofreader and mentor for me and my dad and my brother. <laughs> like when Will and I, um, my younger brother, were both at university, you know, we'd both we'd both send things to mum, be like, here's the assignment. This is what I've written. Like, what do you think? And um, and she'd send stuff back with like comments on structure or writing style or like, I don't understand this. And I think I think that she really undervalues how much that has improved my writing. Mm -hmm. Having having someone proofread anything you ask them is an absolute gift. And it's great. You know, I sent her I sent her first drafts of things still sometimes. Mm -hmm. And she'll send this back with like, I don't understand this word. Will archaeologists understand this world? And sometimes I'm like, yeah, it means this. Like, they should look it up. Um, not that she should, but like, right. archaeologists should. Mm -hmm. um, and other times I'm like, huh, maybe that is completely esoteric. Right. I should probably make this clearer. Mm -hmm. And I, I really think it makes my writing so much more readable. No, that's good. Yeah, having someone who's sharp as all get out, but not in your discipline, read your work is a gift. What about engagements with material? Um, you know, a lot of the question we get a lot as archaeologists is, what's the most interesting thing you've found? Aha, but, I have a cracking answer to that okay, question. Okay, sure, yeah, go for it. Uh, it's not a thing, actually. It's um, a moment. So I was planning these walls in a Byzantine village, Calice Tepper again, um, and I was up there in the afternoon... Um, there were other people on site. It's not like I was working on my own, but I was—I felt like I was on my own because they were all in deep trenches, and I was in these like very shallow houses, like foundations of houses and um, floor surfaces on the top of the mound. And the sky just felt so big. And I was in this—I was working in this space that had been an exterior courtyard in the Byzantine period and was enclosed by these walls. And I just uncovered this beautiful plaster floor, really, really fine lime plaster that I knew wouldn't necessarily be there tomorrow. So I was kind of planning it um, at four in the afternoon, just after the heat of the day had died down. And because it was so soft, I was barefoot, which is making various health and safety experts like freak out. Um, and, you know, probably I shouldn't have been, but I didn't want to crush it. And my boots were really heavy. So I was barefoot on this plaster floor under the Turkish sun. And like the feeling is <laughs> ridiculous, but the feeling of connection, thinking, you know, the last person who walked on this outside courtyard floor under this sky in bare feet was a thousand years ago. And now I get to. And it was lovely. Cool.